Matthew chapter 3. This is the last message in a series on suffering. Have I got reverb on here? No, I can hear myself. Um, This is the last message in in a series that we've been doing on suffering for eight weeks. You're maybe fed up with it. I don't know. Uh, Hopefully it has been of use to you. And being Resurrection Day, I want to finish by looking at Jesus' suffering. And one particular aspect of it that I think maybe can be slightly just missed. I think the church tends sometimes to focus in on certain aspects of truth so much that we then can miss other things that are going on as well. Whenever you read the New Testament, you will read over and over again, particularly from the mouth of Jesus himself, he said repeatedly, the Son of Man has to suffer. He said the Son of Man must suffer. He was emphatic about it. It was not something that just happened because the plan went wrong or that he was living in a... You wouldn't close the kitchen door, just please. Or that he was, he was living in a, in a mean world where people like him got dispatched quickly. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't the case... You know, I've talked to some people lately and, just, and asked them just what they think about Jesus and what their view on him is and... A lot of people out there think Jesus was, was generally a good bloke and that he had some good ideas and he tried to help people and he got killed for it. You know, he challenged the, the thinking of the political powers and the religious powers and therefore they put him to death. And that's what a lot of people think about Jesus. The resurrection for them is, is, is a non-starter and, and he was just a good guy who did his best and got killed for it. But Jesus was, was clear throughout his ministry that this is what lies ahead of me. He must suffer. That was always part of the plan, that he had to suffer. And there are lots of reasons that the Scriptures give us for his suffering. He suffered, of course, to redeem us, to purchase a people for God. He suffered to fulfill the Scriptures. He suffered to demonstrate God's love for us. I think that's one of the most beautiful ones. In Romans 5, while we were yet sinners, while we were still God's enemies, he he demonstrates his love for us in that he died for us. It's almost like like, like God just reached down and, and planted a flag in the ground at Calvary, just reached down with a cross and rammed it into the ground and said, every time you look to this, you will know that I love you. No matter how you feel, no matter what's going on around you, you will know that I love you. So he, he, he suffered to demonstrate God's love for us. He suffered to pay for sin. He suffered to defeat evil and death. The one that I want to focus in on this morning, and it's not the only one, but I want to focus in on the fact that he suffered to bring the kingdom of God and to establish the kingdom of God. It's something that I try to raise to the forefront of our thinking and particularly about a year and a half ago we we did a series on the kingdom of God to try and get our thinking aligned with Jesus thinking because when Jesus showed up on the scene the message that he preached was the kingdom of God has come that was his message you want to sum up Jesus in one phrase that's the phrase the kingdom of God has come that's who Jesus is and I want you to see that Jesus understood that suffering brought the kingdom of God into this world. 
and that that same theme and that same thread runs through our lives as well. So I want to start in Matthew chapter 3 and, and see something that Jesus learned. And I hope it's not wrong to say that Jesus learned something. If he was fully man, if he really was fully man, he had to walk with God and he had to hear God. He had to read the word and study the word and draw it into himself. Some of us, I think, we have this picture of Jesus, the little baby in the manger, just downloading everything in, in, you know, from, from God. Just, just, he's lying there in the manger and he's not kicking and screaming like a normal baby does. He's, he's thinking about some deep theological thing. That is not the case. He was fully man, fully human and fully God at the same time. And he had to learn obedience through suffering. He had to walk with God. He had to hear his father's voice. He had to pray. He didn't just walk around with, with a cloud around him or with or some sort of glow coming out of him. He was fully man. And he had to hear and understand his father. And one of the, one of the occasions at which that happened was at his baptism. In Matthew chapter 3, at the very end of the chapter, it says in verse 16, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And I can imagine that moment. There are certain moments as as I read the gospel that I can imagine all of creation just standing still and watching. The religious people and the political people were too ignorant to understand what was going on here. But in the middle of this river on this particular day, Jesus is in the Jordan River with John the Baptist. God the Son is in the river. And at that moment, God the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. And then God the Father speaks and you have the whole Trinity working together in this little river in the middle of nowhere. And I can imagine all of creation just holding its breath at this moment when the Trinity just descends on this one geographical patch of earth. I can imagine you, you can see along the banks of the river a handful of people who are interested and who, are being, who have been baptized by John and are intrigued by this guy, Jesus. And they're standing watching just at maybe a small crowd. But behind them, I can, I can just visualize millions and millions of angels just trying to get a, glam, a glimpse at what's going on in this incredible moment. And what God says to his son at that moment tells him a lot about his life and what he is going to do and achieve in the next three or three and a half years. If you have a Bible, I want you to go to these passages. I want you to see them. Because that phrase itself, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. It actually takes two Old Testament passages and squeezes them together. And in those two passages, Jesus learns what he's going to do and what his life is going to look like. If you go to Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42, if you have a real Bible, you can do that. If you have a phone, you can't. Get yourself to Psalm 2 and Isaiah 42. We'll go to Psalm 2 first. And see how, how God... Or what, what it is that Jesus learns that day in the water, that Trinitarian moment in the Jordan. In Psalm 2, if you read verse 7, Psalm 2 is a psalm about the king. And verse 7 says, 
I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Now, if you look at verse 7, you are my son. That's what God spoke over Jesus that day in the Jordan River. And when he spoke it, he is pulling out of Psalm 2 this whole idea that tells Jesus he is the king. He is the king. These are the words that God in the Old Testament speaks to the king in Psalm 2. Verse 8 talks about the nations being his inheritance. These are words that speak again of Jesus and what he will do. So when God says that to Jesus, Jesus knows that he is the king. He is going to rule. That is part of what he will do and part of the call upon his life from Psalm 2. But that's not the only verse that's quoted whenever God is speaking over Jesus at the baptism. He says, this is my son whom I love. And he also says, with him I am well pleased. That comes from Isaiah 42. Now you've got to follow me here. We never just get in the car and drive around. You know that. We always go somewhere. So you've got to stick with me to see where we're going. Isaiah 42 verse 1 says, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. Now that phrase, in whom I delight, is exactly the same as what God says to Jesus in Matthew 3 at the baptism. With him I am well pleased. In the original languages, it is the same phrase. So whenever God says to Jesus, you're my son in whom I delight, he is drawing out of Psalm 2 that he's the king, and he's also drawing from Isaiah 42. Now let me tell you what happens in Isaiah 42. Isaiah starts a series of four songs. Four servant songs, they are called. And they all speak of a servant of the Lord. It alludes to Israel, but ultimately it points to Jesus. Let let me just read you a couple of verses from these songs so you can hear allusions to the life and ministry of Jesus in them. In Isaiah 42 verse 3 it says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. This speaks of Jesus. Verse 7 about him who would open the eyes of the blind, free captives from prison, and release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So this is the first song, the first servant song, and it points to Jesus. Now think, Jesus is in the river. He's just heard this. He knows he's going to be king. And he's also heard something that points him back to these servant songs in Isaiah. The second song begins in Isaiah 49. Listen to, to, to again, some words from, from this song that will make you think of Jesus as well. Isaiah 49 It starts from verse 1, but listen to verse 6. And again, you will hear Jesus in verse 6. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. The servant that Isaiah is writing these songs about, this is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. That's the second song. But when you get to the third song, something new comes in. Stay with me because we're going somewhere. 
In the third song, something new comes in. That third one begins in Isaiah 50 from verse 4. And I want you to listen to verse 6. Because as you're listening to these songs, the first one is great, powerful and mighty. All of these things that the servant will do. And the second one is similar. But you get to the third one and something new comes in. There's a new theme to the lyrics that the songwriter is writing that we haven't heard before. In verse 6 it says, I offered my back to those who beat me. My cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking and spitting. There's a new theme introduced in the third song. This servant is going to suffer. And when you get to the fourth song, which begins in Isaiah 52, verse 13, the suffering is now front and center. It's not hidden. It's not veiled. You don't have to look for it. The whole song is about suffering. Look at verse, Isaiah 52, verse 14 says that many were appalled at him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Look at verse 4. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. And as Jesus stands in the river that day. And he hears the voice of his father saying, you are my son. He knows he's the king. And when he hears, in whom I delight, in whom I am well pleased, he knows he is at the same time the suffering servant that Isaiah sang of. And Jesus knows that the rest of his life will be marked by those two things. He is the king establishing a kingdom. And he is the suffering servant who establishes that kingdom by suffering. And it's interesting to note that immediately in Matthew chapter 4, the devil tries to rip the gospel in two. Go to, go to Matthew 4 and see what he does. Jesus gets out of that river knowing, I am the king and I will suffer. And immediately the devil tries to take the gospel and take those two strands and separate them and tear them apart. He comes and he, he tempts Jesus. And in the third temptation in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, it says, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Satan knows that Jesus will have a kingdom. The devil takes him and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you. I'll give you kingdom. I'll give it to you. I know that's what you want. I know that that's what your father spoke over you that day in the river. I know that you will have influence and power and authority and rulership. I know you'll have those things. And he says, I'll give them to you. Just bow down and worship me. I'll give you what you want. I'll give you what God has spoken over your life. Just forget about the suffering. 
I'll give you the king. Use two calls in your life, Jesus. You're the king and you're the suffering servant. And Satan says to him, I'll give you kingdom. I'll give you influence. I'll give you power. And he speaks the same thing into the lives of people all over the place. And he speaks it into the church. He speaks it into the lives of many Christians. I will give you what you want. I'll give you influence and power and authority. I'll give you all of the things that you want. Just don't embrace the suffering thing. Don't go near that cross. And he tries to tear the gospel apart. What God has spoken over Jesus, Satan immediately tries to to tear it away because he knows that it is in suffering that people will see the kingdom. He knows that. He's heard the sermons about Greek words like thlepsis that say that whenever you crush the grape, that's when the wine comes forth. He knows that. And when you crush the olive, that's when the oil comes out. Nobody wants grapes or olives. They want wine. They want oil. Nobody wants grain. They want bread. But none of those things come forth until there's a crushing. And Satan does not want Jesus to be crushed because he knows that if he's crushed, the character of God will ooze out of him. And he knows that if a church embraces suffering and and faces the darkness head on, he knows that people will see Jesus and he doesn't want people to see Jesus. So he tries to fill us with this notion that the gospel is about power and comfort and influence and health and wealth and all of these things that we crave after. But leave the cross behind. Leave the suffering behind. Because if he can pull us away from the cross, and if he can cause us to run away from suffering every time we see it, he knows that people won't see Jesus. And he'd be happy to give us what we want as long as nobody sees Jesus. So he tries to tear it apart. And Jesus says, no. Jesus will not have it. He will not have this watered down calling where he gets the kingdom Without the suffering, the Son of Man must suffer. The only way he will be seen is through suffering. When you read Mark's gospel, the only person who recognizes Jesus in Mark's gospel, the only human, all through Mark's gospel, people are confused about who Jesus is. The demons know who he is. But everybody else gets confused. The disciples don't know who he is. They've got a half a a notion, but they don't really know who he is. The person that knows who Jesus is in Mark's gospel is a Roman centurion at the cross. And the moment that Jesus dies, this guy says, that's the son of God. It is in suffering that his identity is revealed and this guy sees him and knows who he is. Go to Mark chapter 8, please, if you will. And our point this morning as we round out this, this series, the point is that Jesus' suffering is to bring the kingdom of God. It had to happen. There was no other way. It was not a mistake. It was not an accident. It was not plan B. He suffered in order to bring the kingdom of God, the rulership of God into our lives. Mark chapter 8, there's a funny little story in the middle of it. Funny as in, as you read it, you wonder, why is it there? Verse 22 to verse 26, Jesus meets this guy who's blind. And he takes him and he spits on the guy's eyes. And if you think that's gross, there's actually a huge amount of meaning behind that that we won't go into this morning. But it's actually incredibly powerful what he's doing in the culture that he lives in. And he he puts his hands on the guy's eyes and says, do you see anything? 
And the guy says to him, yes, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. And then Jesus touches him a second time and his sight is fully restored. That's a strange little story. Why did it take two touches for this guy to see clearly? I can imagine Mark sitting at his desk in his house as he's writing his gospel and maybe having little scraps of paper or whatever he had with lots of little things scribbled down on it that that he observed in Jesus' life. And these things are sitting all over the table, all of these different accounts and incidents. And he's picking which one to put in, which one to leave out, and what order to put them in. And you think, Mark, why did you include that one? It makes Jesus look bad that he had to touch the guy twice in order to heal him. Maybe you should have just left that one to one side. Nobody would have missed it. Include the more powerful things. But he includes this one where Jesus has to touch the guy twice. Because after one touch, the vision is blurry. And the reason he includes it, it's actually genius the way he has put it into his gospel. Immediately after this, if you start from verse 27, Jesus says to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they have a bit of a a discussion about it. And then he, he says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, which means you're the king. And Jesus says, that's good. But then afterwards, in verse 31, Jesus starts to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer. And Peter doesn't like it. Peter knows that Jesus will be the king. He's got that first aspect of Jesus' character and who he is. But once the suffering comes in, Peter says, no, 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 Jesus. No, 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 not you. You're not going to suffer. That's not the sort of king we want. That's not the sort of gospel we want, Jesus. Jesus tells them that he's going to be killed and after three days rise again. He speaks plainly about it. Peter rebukes him. And Jesus turns and looks at his disciples. I don't know if you've ever thought this was overly harsh from Jesus. That he was a bit snappy on this occasion. That he was overreacting. He turns and he looks at his disciples and rebukes Peter. Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) You're like, Jesus, that's a bit much. Peter's only trying to look out for you. He's only trying to protect you and keep you safe. But what happens on this occasion is that Peter is falling for the gospel according to Satan. Peter is falling for this partial gospel of king and kingdom, but no suffering, no cross. And whenever Jesus hears Peter say that, what he hears again is the voice that he heard in the wilderness in chapter 4 saying, I'll give you the kingdom, I'll give it to you, but worship me. Don't suffer. Don't go to the cross. And he hears that same voice coming through in Peter. King, yes. Suffering, no. And that's why Jesus is so hostile to this. He says, no. He says, I am not taking a kingdom. No kingdom that is worth having comes without suffering. And he rebukes Peter very, very sharply. And it's still a very common notion in the church. A lot of Christians have a blurred vision of who Jesus is. The reason Jesus had to touch the guy twice was not for the benefit of the guy that he healed with two touches. It was for the benefit of the disciples who were only seeing part of the story. 
They had a blurred vision and they needed to get a second dose of truth before they could see clearly. Touches the guy once and then touches him again. Peter's got a little bit. He's got the first touch. He's got the kingdom aspect of things, but he's not seeing clearly the suffering aspect. And that's why Mark puts the healing before this conversation. And there are a huge number of Christians. Well, are they Christians or not? I don't know. There are a huge number of people who go to churches. I want you to listen to me carefully. And they don't know the gospel. The gospel, as I'm presenting this this morning, is that Jesus is the king. And the way he establishes his kingdom is through suffering. And an awful lot of Christians have no place for suffering in their lives at all. No understanding of it. Hopefully after the last two months, we have a slightly clearer, better, more biblical understanding of it. But a lot of Christians have no place for it at all. And not only that, but a lot of Christians have no place for Jesus' kingship in their lives. Is Jesus your king? Is he really your king? Is he your king? Does he rule in your life? Or does comfort rule? Ease? Do we just work our jobs get our money, lock ourselves in our houses, eat food, feast on entertainment and faff away the hours doing nothing online and and just go after comfort all the time and ease. My little kingdom, I'll go after that. I won't suffer. And Satan is happy as Larry for you to have those things. He's so happy for you to have those things because he knows if you never suffer, then the kingdom will not actually be seen in your life. He knows He's happy for you to embrace comfort because if it's all comfort, there is no kingdom. There is no kingdom. If it's all comfort, if we never go into that fiery furnace of Daniel chapter 3, then no one will ever see the fourth man who's in the fire with us because we never go to the fire. We run away from it. But when we embrace the full gospel that this king brings his kingdom through suffering, when we embrace that and don't run away from it, people see Jesus in us. I've had a few conversations lately with people just for some stuff I was doing for an assignment and chatting up the street the other day to a guy who works in the town and I just thought to myself, this guy needs to see Jesus. He, is, he's, he goes to church occasionally, but he has never seen Jesus. And the only way we'll see Jesus is when Christians actually embrace a little bit of suffering in order to let the kingdom come through. And that suffering doesn't just mean sickness. That means maybe just giving up some of the stuff that we hoard and feast ourselves on in order to make time to bring the kingdom of God to people and engage and invest in their lives. Jesus suffered his whole life. I was raised on the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed has a whole lot of fantastic truth in it, but it's got a really badly positioned comma. Because it says in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Comma. As if his only suffering was for 24 hours under Pontius Pilate. Yeah? Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. He suffered his whole life. The comma needs to move. It should be Jesus suffered, comma, 
Under Pontius Pilate, he was crucified. He suffered his whole life. He suffered the first two years of his life whenever he was on the run from a bloodthirsty king who was slaughtering every child under the age of two in order to try and get Jesus. That was suffering. He suffered in the wilderness as he went 40 days against the devil, praying and fasting and being tempted to rip the gospel apart and to not believe what his father had said to him. He suffered when his own family questioned his sanity. Ever done something for the gospel and even your very family said, you're mad. Why are you wasting your time? Jesus suffered. And he suffered when he was opposed by the people who should have known him and recognized him. He suffered at their hands how they spoke about him. And then you read Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, and Peter says, Jesus suffered and left us an example. If you think you can live the Christian life without suffering, you've bought into the gospel according to Satan. Where he just rips it in two and he says, I'll give you kingdom, I'll give you power, I'll give you influence, I'll give you success, I'll give you prosperity, I'll give you everything you want as long as nobody sees Jesus in your life. I'm happy for you to have all of those things. He left us an example which tells me that we should suffer as well. In Mark chapter 8, after the encounter between Jesus and Peter, Jesus then calls a crowd around him in verse 34. And he says to them, and this passage and this verse has, has come up on, over and over again this last year here. Not, even, not just with me, but with others. I hope you don't think that I'm being lazy when I go to the same passages again and again. <laughs> sometimes I think God just wants to hammer something home. And if you're anything like me, you have to sometimes hear things several times before you actually really get it. Jesus, after he has challenged Peter's blurried idea of the gospel, he draws a crowd around them. And he says in verse 34, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But listen to this. Whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. Those are big verses for table. Those are big verses. The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important event in all of history. And I challenge anyone, anywhere who disagrees with that. Everyone who takes history seriously believes in the man Jesus and the fact that he was executed on a cross. They may not believe in the resurrection. There are few people who will claim that any historical event has had more significance on planet earth than that, whether they believe in it or not. But the death, the cross of Jesus is more than a historical event. Jesus' attitude to life that suffering brings kingdom, it's more than a historical event. It is a way to live life. If you've been dozing, catch me for the last five minutes. Jesus' cross is not only a one-off act that redeemed us from our sins, that conquered death and the devil, that took the wrath of God. It did all of those things, but it is also an offer of a way of life. 
We are called to live lives that are cruciform. That means cross-shaped. You look at, at old churches and cathedrals, and when you look down at them from above, you'll see the floor plan is a cross shape. The word to describe that is cruciform. They're designed to look like that. Our lives are meant to be cross shaped. And what we tend to do sometimes as evangelical Christians is we look at the cross and we only see the death of Jesus and our sins forgiven and our ticket to heaven. But the cross is not only that. It is a lifestyle. It is an invitation to come and die, Bonhoeffer said. That's the offer Jesus makes to you. When you're, when you're presenting the gospel to people, just be careful how you present it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, Jesus presents an invitation to come and die. And he was hung not long later just before the end of World War II. He knows what he was talking about. The New Testament does not teach that you have a cross to bear, some burden to carry through life, some difficult thing. The New Testament says that Jesus insists that those who follow him take up a cross. And that means one thing and one thing only. doesn't mean you're going to have some inconveniences. It means you're going to die. You must have an attitude that you will die to your own selfishness and ambition as Jesus invites you to take up a cross. Jesus doesn't change you. He puts you to death and then he raises you to newness of life. He raises you to resurrection life by the power of the Spirit to live differently. And when we invite people to follow Jesus, we must invite them and say, this is a putting to death of the old man. So that a new man can rise up in the power of the Spirit and live in a way that honors him. And embrace whatever life brings in a way that reveals him to other people. Jesus, we, we talk a lot about the substitution. About the fact that Jesus died a substitutionary death. He did. Thank God he did. But it's more than substitution. It's more than that. It's participation. He dies an atoning death for our sins. And then he says, right, your turn. Your death will not atone for anyone's sins, but he invites you to participate in his cross. Listen to Paul in Galatians 2. Do you get this? So you think you know that I'm not being heretical here. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. I'm dead as well, he says. I'm dead as well. I no longer live. But the life I now live in the body, I live by the faith, by faith in the Son of God who lived me, who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with Christ, Paul says. I'm dead. Christ lives in me. That's the gospel. Anything else is a false gospel. Anything else is 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 just sowing seed on rocky ground. I am crucified with Christ. The cross is participation. My crucifixion with Christ does not pay for my sins or anybody else's. But it puts that old man and that old way of living to death and raises me up. Listen to Paul again in Philippians 3. And we love to quote the first part of this verse because the second part is hard to quote. And it's hard to pray. 
Philippians 3 verse 10, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. And everybody starts bouncing going, yeah, yeah, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Keep going. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. And it's like, mm. suddenly we're not jumping around shouting hallelujah anymore. Becoming like him in his death. that bit doesn't get quoted as much. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That's the gospel. If we want to see the power of God in revival, if we really want to see that, we must all personally take up the cross, die to ourselves, and our selfishness and our ambition. Embrace the suffering and the sacrifice that goes with that. What have you given up for the gospel? Even small things. Have you given anything up for the gospel? Anything that you can look back on and say, I laid that down. I suffered the loss of that thing for the gospel. Have we ever taken up the cross? Is there anything we can look back on and say, I could have done that and I could have ran hard at that and I could have ran after it and I could have gone a different way and I could have had the kingdom and I could have had the influence, could have had the power and I could have had the success, but I've laid that thing down and I've, I've embraced the sacrifice of it and the suffering that goes along with it for the sake of the gospel. Because if you want to see the kingdom come, that's what it takes. And I'm very aware, very, very aware that that I have maxed out. And if we want to see the kingdom come, we all need to take up our crosses. All of us. All of us. All of us. I I challenged you to think about the most effective Christians that you know personally. People whose lives you can look closely at. Not just people you read in books or whatever. The most effective people for the kingdom of God. I guarantee you those are all dead people. And by that I don't mean physically dead a hundred years ago. I mean they're people who have died to self. Who have laid it down and taken up a cross and followed Jesus. The most effective people in the church are not gifted people. Although the Spirit obviously gifts people and equips them for ministry. But it's not people who are naturally gifted. It is not people who are well educated. It is people who are dead. And who have embraced the new life that Christ offers to those who will lay down their lives. They are the most effective people for the gospel and the kingdom of God. Would you be like those people? Would you take up your cross And die to self in order that the kingdom would come. I think the greatest hindrance to seeing God's power unleashed in our land. And this probably applies to the whole western world. Is that there are so many Christians who refuse to take up their crosses. They refuse to die. Every now and again they maybe get close to it. They maybe get close to to saying I am crucified with Christ. And then they jump down again and they say no I don't want that. It's too hard. And then they're ineffective. I'll finish off in Mark chapter 10 with just a picture that I want you to hold in your mind today as you, as you think about the cross. Mark chapter 10, 
James and John ask a really silly question. And if you've heard me use this illustration before, just indulge me. Because I think it's powerful. Mark chapter 10, verse... Uh, it would help if I looked at Mark 10, and Mark, not Mark 9. Mark chapter 10, look at verse 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Is that what your prayer life's like? Just as a, as a digression. <laughs> Sometimes is that the way we pray? We want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, this is James and John, come to Jesus and they say, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. These guys are all enthusiastic and they want kingdom. Remember, there are two aspects to the gospel and if you separate them, you've got no gospel at all. Kingdom and suffering. These guys want kingdom. They see Jesus, when they talk about when Jesus comes into his glory at the end of verse 37, what they're thinking about is a big old throne in Jerusalem. Big old gold throne and Jesus sitting on it, barking out orders. You do this, you do that. Ruling the whole place. And they they think that, that that's what Jesus' kingdom will look like. And they say... We'll get in first and we'll make sure we've got a good spot in the throne room. And they say, Jesus, whenever you come into your glory, at your moment of glory, Jesus, will you please arrange it that there's a throne on either side of you, one for, for James, one for John, so that we can be enthroned with you in your glory. And Jesus says to them, you have no idea what you're actually asking for. No clue. Can you be baptized with my baptism? Can you drink the cup that I drink? And they say, yes, yes, oh yes, we can, yes. And this is probably about two weeks maybe before Jesus goes to the cross. And John, more than any other writer in the gospel, stresses the point that the cross itself, the crucifixion of Jesus, is the moment of his enthronement. It is the moment of glory. John 12, Jesus says, now the hour has come, the Son of Man is going to be glorified. He's not talking about a big old gold throne, he's talking about the cross. And John emphasizes this. In fact, John Calvin said that John's gospel was the theater of glory. And John understood when he wrote his gospel that the moment of Jesus' crucifixion and death was the moment of his enthronement. It was the moment when the kingdom was established. And whenever John was at the cross, he was an eyewitness. No, not many people hung about. A lot of people ran from the suffering. John stuck around. And in Mark 15, verse 27, Mark records... They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And we have so many images, Google images of three crosses. But you imagine how John felt that day as he looked at the scene at Calvary and he remembered back to the conversation a couple of weeks earlier saying, I want your kingdom. I want a throne beside you. Can you arrange that there's a throne on either side of you so that we can be enthroned with you? You don't know what you're asking. 
And then he looks, and I can imagine it all coming back to him as he looks at that scene and he thinks about his question and he sees on either side of Jesus not two thrones but two crosses. And he suddenly realizes at that moment, if I want to reign with him, then I need to suffer with him. He brings his kingdom through suffering. And if I want to experience his kingdom, I have to share in his sufferings, as Paul said. It would be great if people could see Jesus in us by how we sing, wouldn't it? Because we sing well, we sing loud. Christian musicians have no bother filling big arenas all over the world and thousands of people will come and they'll sing. Be great if people could see Jesus and how we sing. Be really good. Be a lot easier, wouldn't it? We could just sing our lungs out and everybody would see Jesus and get born again. But that's not what happens. They don't see Jesus in how we sing. They don't really even see Jesus that much sometimes in how we preach. They see Jesus in how we suffer. And if we all, if we just run after, and I want you to get this, if you just run after comfort, your own wee bubble, your own wee life, just wrap yourself in cotton wool as you sail through life, just anesthetize yourself on entertainment and just block out all the, all the cries of the world just as long as you're okay and you've got enough money to live on and you've got enough snacks and you've got enough entertainment and you just... All comfort. No one will see Jesus. No one will see Jesus. I want to tell you that before you continue to waste your life. No one will see Jesus. In that. But whenever you start to just kill a few of those things and embrace whatever the consequences of sacrifice may be, people will see Jesus. That's ultimately why suffering takes place, in my opinion. The question that we've asked way back at the start, why, why suffering, why? Why is this So the people will see Jesus. And I want people to see Jesus in my life. And after what I've just said, I don't say that lightly. I want to challenge you to hear his words in Mark 8. If anyone would be my disciple, he must, must, not he should, not it would be preferable if he would, but he or she must take up their cross. And if you're clinging to your life for all your fit, Jesus said, you will lose it. I don't care if you prayed a sinner's prayer. I don't care if you went to church. If you're clinging to your cozy little life, Jesus says, you're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. There's an awful lot of people sitting in an awful lot of churches all over the world, and particularly in the West, who are going to lose their lives because they're trying to hold on to them. He says, if you will just lay down some of that garbage that you run after and embrace the fullness of the gospel and die for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll actually find life. And others will find life as well because they'll see it in you.